Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Now, I will tell you, this is one of those passages that, uh, I don't know, it's, it's been taught so many times, it's been heard so many times, it's, uh, I've, I have probably heard 500 different messages on this passage in the last 10 years. It's a very common passage for people to teach. Uh, most of us could probably, if not quote, we could probably paraphrase this entire passage. Um, there is something important for us to know about this before we get started. The miracle that is recorded in the passage that we're looking at today is one of the few that is recorded in all four Gospels. There are not many miracles that are in all four of the Gospels. There are quite a few that are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. There are some that are in Matthew and Mark, but not in Luke and not in John. There are some that are in uh, Mark and Luke, but not in Matthew and not in John. And then there are some that are in John that aren't anywhere else. But this one is in all four of the Gospels. And I really hope, and I prayed as I was putting the, the, my notes together for this morning, that when we're done going through this, even though it is a passage that's so familiar, it's a miracle that is so familiar to us, it's, it's not unique, but that there would be something that we could gain from this that we don't expect. We should always expect to learn something from God's Word, no matter how many times we've read it. And that's, you know, that's not even taking into account the number of times that we read a passage and think, well, that wasn't there last time, right? Have you ever had that happen? Where you've read a very familiar passage of Scripture for the hundredth time, and all of a sudden, wait, I don't remember that being there before. So let's, let's see if we can... Uh, get something that we've never seen before out of Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Let's all stand for today's scripture. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. Let's pray. Father, as we study this miraculous feeding of such a great number of people, let us not lose sight of the importance of the ministry of Christ 
not just his spiritual ministry to save our souls, but how he demonstrated a caring compassion for the physical needs of the people that he ministered to. Father, help us to emulate your son more. and We pray through Christ. Amen. Please have a seat. All right, I got a pop quiz for you. Okay? What is the most important rule for interpreting Scripture? Context, 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 right? It's just like buying and selling a house. The most important rule for selling a house or buying a house is location, location, location. Well, context is just a textual location. Where does it fit in history? Where does it fit into the greater story of the chapter, the book, the Bible? So when Matthew starts out in verse 13 and he says, Now when Jesus heard this, we got to figure out what the this is. What did Jesus hear? If we look at the previous section, it would be very easy for us to assume that he heard about the death of John the Baptist because at the end of the previous section... We hear, verse 12, the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. It would make sense then that Jesus heard about the death of John, and this is when it happened. Except, remember, that passage was mostly flashback. It was mostly a picture of something that had already occurred. If you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he has been raised from the dead, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. I'm going to tell you that that's what Jesus heard about. Why would he withdraw from the people, why would he go off to a desolate place if that was what he had heard? Because it was not Jesus' time to be revealed. And because Herod, son of Herod the Great, had already had John beheaded because of Herodias. And if he thinks Jesus is John come back from the dead, then one of two things is going to happen. He's going to either seek to have Jesus imprisoned or he's going to seek to have Jesus executed again, neither of which fit into God's timeline. So, Jesus withdraws, he takes a boat, and we're told that he goes to a desolate place by himself. Now, I don't know if that by himself means that he was really by himself or if he had the disciples with him, because many times he would take them too. I tend to think he was by himself. He took a small boat and he went out someplace on the Sea of Galilee by himself. This is a common practice for Jesus, to go off by himself. What does Jesus do when he's off by himself? That's right, he prays. He takes time to talk to God. There's principle number one, right? If the only time you find yourself praying is A, before you eat, or B, when you're at church, there's a problem with your prayer life. 
okay? If we're supposed to be emulating Jesus, if we're supposed to be Christ-like in our living, then we ought to have a time where we go out and we seek solitude where it's just us and God. We ought to do that. It's not the easiest thing to do, is it? We live busy lives. However, look at the life of Jesus. Now, notice something about Jesus' life in Scripture here. It doesn't say that Jesus went out every day and did this. It doesn't say that he did it once a week. There is no time frame on the right number of times to pray. There is no quantity. There is no limitation. There is no prescription for how and when and where and why we're supposed to have time in prayer. What we do know is that Jesus went someplace to be by himself, and Matthew says, when the crowds heard it, they followed him. (laughs) Humanly speaking, Jesus can't catch a break. When you minister to folks who are in need, and they hear about it, and they know that it's the love of Christ, they know that it's the power of God that's making a difference, they know that something is happening, they will seek you out. And that's what happens to Jesus. The crowd finds out where he went. They sought him out. They, 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 I can see this picture. They see the boat going away from the shore, and they split, and they follow it around the shore to figure out where he's going to wind up. And once they figure out where he's going to wind up, they all wait there for him. He didn't turn around. He didn't drop anchor in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He he went to shore. There's a very, very, very important statement there in verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. He heals their sick, they're blind, they're lame, they're mute, they're deaf, they're leprous, they're demon-possessed. He doesn't turn the boat around to find a different place to go. He doesn't chase them off and chastise them for not leaving them alone so he can have a quiet time with God. He doesn't say, you're interrupting my spiritual growth. What does he say to the crowd? Be healed, I love you. He has compassion on them. Is that what we do? When we're, oh, I don't know, on our way to church in the morning and we're stopped by the homeless guy who's asking for a couple dollars so he can buy breakfast at Burger King? Is that how we respond? With, I love you, here's a couple dollars? Or do we respond with, I don't have time for this, I'm keeping my window rolled up. We drive past. See, again, there's, there's an opportunity for us to be Christ-like. He doesn't go into a, a long dissertation on how important it is for a minister to have quiet time alone with God. I hear my, my pastoral peers, and I'm not saying it's not important. Jesus had a connection with God that I don't have, because he's the son. I'm an adopted son, but I still carry that sin nature with me. I still have that barrier between me and God. I have to work at that fellowship with God. 
to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying it's not important for me to have that time for preparation and time for prayer, but I can't have it at the sacrifice of ministering to others. Neither can you. We have to be willing to meet people where they are, when they are. He goes to the people, and he does what Jesus does. When Jesus sees somebody who's hurting, when the leper comes to him at the foot of the mountain after he does the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, get away from me, you unclean man. You just made this whole crowd unclean. You need to get over there like you're supposed to. What did he do? He touched him and said, go see the priest. Your leprosy's healed. When he saw the blind man, he didn't condemn him for the sin that made him blind. Instead, he healed him. When he met the demon-possessed, he delivered them from that oppression. He loves in a way that we need to understand. He puts himself aside to care for the need of others before his own. And Matthew tells us that he did it all day. He ministered to their physical need of healing. He ministered to what they actually needed for their body, not just... This is hard for us to get. We never get this right. Okay? People never get this right. You have a food pantry set up to meet the needs of people who don't have food. But before they can get food, they've got to hear a gospel presentation. Look, I'm all about giving them a gospel presentation, but they ain't going to listen to it if their stomach's growling. (laughs) We never get that right. We either overemphasize the physical need or we overemphasize the spiritual need and we forget that we are a living soul with a physical body. That the two of them are kind of co-joined. How many of you are starving right now? Y'all ought to be afraid to lie in church like that. Because I know for a fact that at least some of you that raised your hands ate very well last night. There's nobody in here who's starving. You might be hungry. But you're not starving. But the hungrier we get, the harder it is to listen to a message. The easier it is to be distracted by that hunger, right? If I'm in physical pain, like before we started in between Sunday school and and the time that we started our worship service, as I'm just wandering around the back of the sanctuary, I got a muscle spasm between my shoulder blades that just about put me on the floor. And I'm dealing with it right now. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard for us to, when we have a physical problem, it's hard to hear, it's hard to listen. But what we're told here is that Jesus ministered first to their physical need. And then Mark tells us, because this does happen It is recorded in all four of the Gospels. I'm going to refer to Mark and Luke and John as well. Mark says that the people were like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus taught them. So as he's ministering, he is teaching. 
He's teaching them many different things. We don't know what things specifically. Luke says that he spoke to them of the kingdom of God. So I can hear all those parables that Jesus was just teaching while he was out on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He may even have been in the same boat that he took to get here. Where he was teaching them, the kingdom of heaven is like this, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Teaching them like he taught the Sermon on the Mount. And then, evening rolls around. Now this is why I say that the disciples probably went with him. Because the disciples suddenly show up. I don't think they paddled their own boat. More importantly, I don't think Jesus paddled his own boat. Evening rolls around and the ever practical disciples come to Jesus with a problem. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. The disciples are nothing if not practical. They can see how a physical need exists and how a physical need has to be met. This morning we looked at the anointing of Jesus at Bethany and the disciples. Why did she waste all that perfume? It could have been sold and we could have fed the poor for years. Why would you do that? That's practical speaking. The disciples come to Jesus with a problem. Now, what's the problem? It's 6 p.m. That's evening time in uh, Hebrew timekeeping. It's 6 p.m. The day is over. Jesus is sitting on the hillside. Literally thousands of people have gathered around. The disciples come to Jesus, specifically Philip. Philip is mentioned in the other Gospels. They come to him, and now I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to paraphrase because the formality of written words, I don't think, convey the emotion of what was going on. I can see Philip coming to Jesus. Hey, um, hey, Jesus, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's coming up on dinner time. And we, we don't have enough to feed all these people. In fact, we were kind of counting on having to go get our own food. So how's about you tell everybody, since you're the teacher and they're listening to you, how about you tell them that, that okay, the, the show is over, go into the surrounding villages and get yourself something to eat and, and go to bed so we can have the time that we need to, to spend with you and listen to you and, and to get some food for us. And Jesus turns the answer around and he puts the responsibility right squarely in the lap of those practical disciples. No, you feed them. Why would he do that? Was, was Jesus naive enough to think that the disciples could suddenly produce enough food to feed thousands of people there on the hillside? No. Sometimes the practical is not what we need. What we need is faith. Was Philip wrong in his understanding of what was going on? No, I don't think he was. It's not hard to count. There's 13 of us up here on the hillside. 
And there's thousands of people down there. And we've got no food. That's going to be a problem. That's, that's very practical. That's very easy to deduce. Did, did Jesus get confused? No. This is one of the places where Jesus actually puts the disciples to the test. Have they been paying attention to the fact that God answers Jesus' prayers? Have you been taking notes? Have you seen? Now, I'm not going to pick on the disciples. It's not their fault. They are descendants of the Israelites who were in the wilderness for 40 years, eating bread from heaven and complaining about it, following around a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, wandering for 40 years, and their shoes didn't wear out. I can't get shoes to last for 40 days without wearing out. That should have been miracle enough. But they grumbled and they complained and they questioned God at every turn. The disciples, Jesus is putting them to the test. Do you get it? Do you understand that I do what I do because God is doing it? Do you get that? Do you believe that God could cater the hillside with a 25-course meal if he so desired? Do you get it? Or are you stuck in the material world like every other person? So I'm going to turn that question on us. When we face the insurmountable, when we face the, I don't know how to get past this obstacle. I don't know how I'm going to make this end meet that end. I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay for food and fill in the blank. We need to look towards the same source that they needed to look at. That doesn't mean that God is going to take my checking account where I have five tens and and two ones and he's going to miraculously multiply that and leave me with 12 baskets left over. Be awesome if he did, except for the fact that I'd have to distribute it among thousands of people. Well, never mind. I don't want to do that. (laughs) There's that Sunday school lesson again. Philip just can't understand They even protest. In Mark and in Luke, we're told that they they say, look, Jesus, even if we went and bought 200 denarii of bread, it wouldn't be enough. One denarius was a day's wage. So even if the average worker in the United States makes about $10 an hour, that would be $80 equal to one denarius. Times, that's $16,000 if we were to put that into American money today. So Philip says, Jesus, even if I went and bought $16,000 worth of bread, it wouldn't be enough. That's a lot of food. And it wouldn't be enough. That gives you an idea of the scope and magnitude of the crowd that Jesus had been ministering to. Now, let me ask you, at what point did Philip say, Jesus, you need your rest? He didn't. At what point did the disciples say, Jesus, we need to get you some food before you collapse? 
They didn't. They were focused on the big problem, not the big God. The reason the number, the the amount of money wouldn't be big enough was because the numbers are ludicrous. Okay? The disciples did not carry around 200 denarii in their purse. If you're wandering around the Judean wilderness, you're wandering around the countryside, you don't carry 200 days worth of pay. Look, I don't do that in Biloxi or Gulfport. And we don't have highwaymen and bandits. We have politicians and gas stations, and they're just as bad. They would never have been able to bring back that amount of bread, that amount of food. And it would not have been enough for the people. It would have been better for the people to leave. It would have been better for the people to go fend for themselves. So, since they're going to be concerned with what they have and what they can do with it, Jesus tells them, go take an inventory of what resources we have. Go ahead, practical fellas, go. Go into the crowd and see what food there is. Now, they come back with the report that the whole gathering only has the lunch of one small boy to share. I've got to put my foot in here. Okay? I don't know if that was a, a, a factual statement or not. There may have been people in the crowd who had food that didn't tell them that they had food. They may not have gone and visited the entire crowd. We know there were 5,000 men plus women and children. Okay? If we are conservative and we say that out of those 5,000 men, say 2,000 of them were married... So they had their spouse, and that half of them had a child. Now we're up to 8,000 people. Some estimates put it at closer to twelve or 14,000 people. If they started this conversation around 6 p.m., how long would it have taken for the 12 to go through a crowd of eight to 14,000 people to do an inventory of food? Right. I'm pretty sure the mob would have turned on them and the 12 would have come back as skeletons. The bones would have been picked clean. I really, really, really don't know if that was an accurate count or if that was just what the disciples reported. That's what we're told. They reported all we have was five loaves and two fish. If you look over in John's Gospel, chapter 6, where this takes place, John tells us that these loaves were made from barley. How many of y'all like barley? I personally love barley. In a soup, love it. Right? This wasn't in a soup. These were barley cakes. These were probably no more than about the size of a Twinkie. Maybe a, a, a cupcake. Maybe. Right? Probably about this thick. Probably not very well leavened. The, the barley was probably not finely ground. Barley at that point in time in Israel was a grain that was reserved for feeding animals, not for feeding people. 
The only people who ate barley were those that were really, really poor. And by the way, like I said, these are the size of a cupcake. So it's not like this kid came with five Walmart French bread loaves of barley. These are little cakes of bread. Coarse ground animal food. The fish would either have been smoked, salted, or jellied. So, either smoked herring, uh, herring, herring, or maybe salted sardines, or anchovies, or possibly jellied fish, like the stuff you can buy at the store around Passover time, uh, the whatever they call it. Yeah, that that yeah, fish jelly. Yum. Whatever it was, it would have barely been enough to take the barely palatable barley bread and make it at least taste a little less than unpalatable. That's what the disciples told Jesus they had to feed thousands of people. Five muffins made from animal feed and two small fish to improve the flavor. Yummy. Sign me up. Now, there are those out there who will tell you that this was a miracle of generosity. That the real miracle was that Jesus got this kid to donate his lunch, and when the people saw what the boy did, they were so moved that they gave their lunch too. And that's how they were able to feed so many people. There are others, (laughs) it's not what the Bible says, there are others who will say that, that Jesus and the disciples actually set this up. Beforehand, there was a cave on the hillside, And they loaded it with provisions. And so when the boy came forward and Jesus was was breaking the bread, they were actually passing it to him from the cave to where the people couldn't see it. And he was was breaking the, the stuff that they had stashed so that it wasn't really a miracle at all. That's that's not how this works. To the disciples' surprise, when they come to Jesus now, Peter's in this group. We're told that it's Andrew that brings the small boy to Jesus. Andrew brings the boy. Hey, look, this kid's got, this is all the food we can find. Five little barley loaves, two fish. That's what we got. Now, will you please send the people away so they can get food? boy gives the food to Jesus and he prays and he starts breaking it into pieces. Peter is probably standing there with his mouth open. What in the world are you doing? Why? What? And he's breaking and he drops it and he breaks and he drops a piece and he breaks and he drops a piece and he breaks and he drops a piece and he breaks and he's still on the first loaf. And he... (laughs) 
And he fills a basket and he hands it to Peter. And now Peter's jaw's on the ground for a different reason. Peter, go take that out to the crowd and start feeding the people. In the meantime, Jesus is still, he's breaking the food and dropping it and breaking 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 it. And it doesn't stop. It's not enough just to feed the people. <laughs> All 12 of the disciples. Think about Judas. All right? Here's the guy who's like cynical about everything Jesus does, who's like, you know, probably skimming off the top of their treasury box, who was trying to figure out how he was going to have anything left if they had to go buy food for everybody. Jesus hands him a basket. Here, go take it to that group over there. If I knew we could do this, I could make a fortune. We could set up a bakery, bake one loaf, and feed the entire city. All 12 of the disciples, they come back. My basket's empty. Oh, here, take this one. What happened? It blows their mind. The whole assembly ate. I love this word. And they were satisfied. What were they eating? Barley loaves and fish. Pickled or smoked or salted fish and animal food. But the whole crowd ate and they were satisfied. Yeah. You ever feed a large crowd? It's hard to get 500 people satisfied. It's hard to get five people satisfied. I have six in my family. We don't feed them a large meal, and we don't feed them barley loaves and smoked fish. And at the end of dinner, I'm almost guaranteed one of them is going to say, I'm still hungry. Matthew tells us there were 5,000 men plus women and children. And they all ate and were satisfied. They were full. They were no longer hungry. They were satisfied with the meal. They didn't turn their noses up at it. They didn't turn it away. These are people from Israel. They turned their noses up at manna. They ate and they were satisfied. Between eight and 14,000 people. And they were satisfied. And if that's not enough, then the disciples went and picked up leftovers. <laughs> and it wasn't one basket, it was 12 baskets. Each one of the disciples is walking back to Jesus with, well, at least there's a little bit left over. And they get back, and each one of them is holding a basket full of leftovers. So what is the point of this? See, Jesus could have 
turn the crowd away. He could have turned the crowd away at the very beginning when he got off the boat. When he gone off to seek solitude and he arrives at a place of solitude and instead it's a place of multitude. He could have turned the crowd away. But he didn't. He could have told the disciples, go tell the people to disperse so they can get food. But he didn't. He could have told the disciples, go buy food. And he could have multiplied the money that was in their purse to buy the food. But he didn't. Instead, he took a humble, undesirable offering. And he used it to show the disciples what kind of faith they needed to have. Pay attention to that. What kind of offering was it? It was minuscule. It was not desirable. It was what most people would have thrown in the garbage can. And Jesus took it and did something big with it. So the next time that you find yourself wondering, what can Jesus do with me? I'm not rich. I don't have the gift of being able to speak. I'm not well-educated. I'm not old enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not short enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not skilled enough. Whatever your excuse is, five barley muffins and two smoked fish. And Jesus did something huge with it. He can do something huge with who you are.